Acts 17. Beginning of verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things." And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Diosthenes, the Areopagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you uh, for giving the Apostle Paul, the servant of Christ, these words. We pray for the blessing of your Spirit to be on your word even now. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to begin with the question, and it is this. What is Resurrection Sunday all about? You know, we might talk about Easter and the origin of that word. It is debated in our day and time where it came from. We could talk about Easter eggs and the Easter or perhaps the Energized Bunny. Uh, But uh, the question is, is Easter really about Easter eggs and bunnies, and things of that sort. Generally, it is understood that at this time of the year, 2,000 years ago, a Jewish carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, he died, and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. You know, that's an article of our Christian faith. That's part of what every true Christian believes. But what does the resurrection of one man from the dead 2,000 years ago have to do with me and you here today? 
That's the question I want to ask and present to you this morning. You know, the Bible itself records the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in several places. One of those places is 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul, the same apostle who preached the sermon we just read, he said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. He, he says, in, in essence there, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. That means God is in control of all things and directs human events. And that the scriptures are true and accurate. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, he says it's so important, so significant, that without it, uh, the Christian faith means nothing. He says if it's not true, if the resurrection is not true, what? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's it. And so it's crucial, it's pivotal when it comes to the Christian faith. And in 1 Peter 1, 3, the Bible there says it is the Christian's hope. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so as Christians, we do have hope. And one reason we have hope is because Jesus rose from the dead. Now in our text this morning, there in verse 31, we have another reason as to the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so this morning, what I want to do is basically ask four questions surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ and answer them mostly from this text. And these are questions we should be asking ourselves as we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the first question is, what significance does the resurrection of Jesus Christ have for me? And this is a question you should ask, so it's for me and for you, for you and me. What significance does the resurrection of Jesus Christ have for me? Now, I've already given you several uh, for the Christian in general, but in our text, Paul, he, he gives that to us at verse 31, and just briefly, let me uh, tell you the context of what is going on here. I think it is helpful and uh, useful for us. So the Apostle Paul was traveling, and uh, he was um, basically delivered, as we read in verse 16, at Athens. And he was brought there. He was waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. So while he was waiting for those two men to join him, he strolled through Athens and uh, probably had read about this and learned about this great city. And uh, he was strolling through, and in verse 16, the author of Acts, Luke, says that Paul, in his spirit, he was provoked. In the original, it means he was angry. Paul, the apostle, became angry. I just want to stop there and note that not all anger is sinful anger. The question is, can you control your anger, and what do you do with that anger? Do you lash out? Do you attack people and all that? Or do you attack the problem? Anger is sort of a pulse, a read of things. Well, I've perceived an injustice here. And for Paul, the injustice was these men and these women and these children of Athens, they were given to idols. They were not worshiping the living and true God. That's why he became angry. As an apostle, he was passionate about his God, the living and true one. And so he was provoked. And then he, uh, we are told he was provoked 
when or because he saw that the city was given over to idols. In ancient Athens, this was the case. It was a Greek area, and uh, they had all of these temples. They, they had the Areopagus, as we've read already. They had the Acropolis, which sat at the um, height, the, the most high place of the city. And there were all these temples. There's the Parthenon where the goddess Athena was worshipped. One writer said that Athens itself was the altar of Greece. And then one of their contemporaries says that in, in Athens, it was easier to find a god than a man. God with a little g, an idol. And so Paul says, yeah, we were told that, that Paul noted they were given over to idols. And we, when we think about that, now, idols are, have crept into our culture for years now, but at the same time, maybe you don't have an idol of stone, wood, or gold in your house. Maybe you don't have a Buddha to which you bow or something like that. But an idol, at its very essence, is something that replaces God in your life, the living and true God. When you put something before God, that becomes your God. And it removes God from his rightful place in your life. And so an idol for anyone can be a person. It can be a relationship. It can be food. It can be clothing. It can be money. Jesus says where your heart is, there is your treasure. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. It can be golf. I like golf in case you didn't know. And it, it can be anything. And so John Calvin had it right. He says the human heart is a factory of idols. I mean, our hearts are cranking out idols all day because we are born in sin and in rebellion against God. So Paul sees all of this happening. He gets angry and um, he, he preaches this sermon. As, I mean, there is so much in this sermon that the Word of God applies to every age, but I just want to say it really applies to our day and time, especially right now. And he gives them this lesson in theology that God is sovereign. He's the creator. He's not only the creator, he's providential over all things. He sets the boundaries of the nations. In fact, he is the one who gives you life. And in fact, he, he gives you breath. The very breath that you breathe, God oversees that in your life. And, and so he gives them this lesson in theology and what that means for them. They're, they're not worshiping the true God. In fact, they had all these false gods, as I've said, and they had this one idol with the inscription to the unknown God. You know, just in case, you know, some people approach, quote, religion like that. They have this religion, this religion, and, oh, yeah, I'll do the Christian faith, too. They adopt the Christian faith. So, you know, maybe if I play, it's like the stock market. If I play my cards right, maybe I'll win big at the end. Maybe I'll get one of them right. Well, that's what they were doing. And Paul says, no, no, there's one God. This is the, the God I proclaim to you. And so that's what he does. And so when he gets to the end of the sermon there in verse 31, he is basically calling them to repentance, a summons. He's calling them to action. And so he calls them to repentance, and he does that in light of a few things. So, so let's look at verse 31. He says, because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. If you go back to verse 30, he says, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. To repent 
uh, means to have a change of mind, a change of heart. It means to turn from your way of life, to turn from your rebellion against God and the Lord Jesus Christ and your unbelief towards Him, to turn from all of those things and to turn to God, to walk in His direction and say, have your way with me and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. At its core, that's what repentance means. It means to have a change of heart and mind that leads to a change of life. And so there is this call. Well, why? Verse 31, because... Here's the reason. He, God, has appointed a day on which he will judge the world. And so he has set a day. He has appointed a day. He's fixed it. He's put it on the calendar. It's locked in. Our day in court is fixed. We will stand before the judge of heaven. That ought to be sobering. He says he's going to judge the world indiscriminately, God will judge all men. He will judge men and women and children from every tongue, tribe, and nation, all who have lived, who are living, and will ever live before the Lord Jesus comes back on this earth. That includes Jude 6, tells us the apostate angels. And so that's why it says here that every man, is to repent. All men, when the Bible says all men, it means all men, women, and children, all human beings there. And so he's going to judge the world. And then it says in righteousness. And so what is the standard? We need to know that, right? If we're going to be judged, we need to know, okay, what's the standard? What, what is the goal for my life by which I will be judged. Well, he says, in righteousness, it could be said according to righteousness. So what is righteousness? The word right is in righteousness, right? And it's that which is right. Well, who determines right from wrong? You, me, the state, doctors, psychologists, Christian psychologists, Christian doctors, Christians in general? No. God. God determines our ethic. God determines right from wrong. He's the creator. And he's given us his word. He's given us his law. And his law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And so when we study this word righteousness in the scriptures, it points us back to the Ten Commandments. We could look at that and say that is the standard by which men will be judged at that time. So in righteousness, and we think about righteousness in Matthew 12, Jesus says we're going to be judged by even, according to every idle word, even our words will be judged before God. Because out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. And so that will be the case as well. When you think about the Ten Commandments, can you name them right now? If you can't name them, are you keeping them? Have you kept them? Uh, The Bible says that there is none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.10. So we really already have that verdict now. By God's grace, we have the verdict now. We know where we stand according to that judgment. And it says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the pride of man keeps him from acknowledging this. Have you ever lied? 
That makes you a liar. Have you ever stolen anything? That makes you what? A thief. Have you ever committed adultery? Well, no, that's one of those big ones. I haven't done that. Maybe you have. Uh, but uh, Jesus says, well, in Matthew 5, if you look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery, at least in your heart. So we're all guilty of these things. And in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, do not be deceived. Liars, nor adulterers, nor thieves will inherit the kingdom of God. And then if you look at verse 31 there, it says, uh, through or by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. So the judge will be who? Jesus. Jesus will be the judge at that day. And so all men will be judged at the day, the final day. They will be judged according to the standard of God's word, his law, his commandments. The one who will be the judge is Jesus Christ. Okay, I know, Kevin, I know that that's what Christianity has taught for 2,000 years, but how do I know it's true? How can I believe that? Look at verse 31. The last section there. It says, he, God, has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So I wonder if you've ever thought about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in these terms. It is assurance, it is the guarantee of our, mine, and yours, your, our future judgment. That's one thing that the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees. That's one of the significant things that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ has for me and for you. Other scriptures talk about this in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. It says, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. You know what we do in the dark? We'll be exposed in the light. At the day of judgment. Hebrews 9, 27, it says, As it is appointed once for men to die, and after this, the judgment. And uh, maybe you're a Christian this morning and you're thinking, Well, Kevin, does that include me? I'm a Christian. Well, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, Paul is writing there. He says, For we, that includes himself, he's a Christian, he's an apostle, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of of Christ. And so that is the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ according to verse 31 here in our text. But thankfully, God does not leave us there. And so the second question this morning is, am I ready for this judgment? Our day in court is set. Are you ready? Have you gathered your evidence, your defense, and all of this and put it together? Are you ready? Do you know what you're going to say? That's the question we ought to be asking this morning. Even though we've all been indicted, even though Romans 3 tells us we are unrighteous, we are not righteous. Even though, as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Even though Revelation 21 and verse 8 says that sinners will be placed in the lake of fire. I think our 
If, if we're honest in our hearts, we will be like the psalmist in Psalm 130 and verse 3. Oh Lord, if you were to mark iniquities, who could stand? That's the way it is for me. Yeah, but you're a preacher, Kevin. Aren't you supposed to be the holy guy? Well, I'll tell you, yeah, I'm supposed to be advancing in righteousness and holiness, but I know my heart. I've been born again. I have a new heart, but I have remaining sin. And so, are we ready? Well, there's a third question I would like to ask. If this is the significance of the resurrection for us this morning, is it possible then that the resurrection of Jesus Christ can work in my favor? Do you understand what I'm asking? Resurrection means I'm going to be judged by God, and in particular by the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the standard is righteousness. That's His Word, His law, His commandments. I've broken all of them. I'm unrighteous. The resurrection points to all of these things. So is it possible that the resurrection at the same time could work in my favor? Well, consider this. In Romans 1 and verse 4, we learn there that the resurrection of Jesus Christ serves as a badge. You know, if someone comes to you and says, I'm with the FBI, hopefully not, but they should flash a badge. That verifies that the office of the FBI has sent that person to you. Well, how do we know that God the Father sent the Lord Jesus Christ to us? His badge is the resurrection. In Romans 1 and verse 4, it says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. In Romans 4.25, Paul teaches there that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the Father's testimony to the world that He, the Father, accepted the Son's death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was raised for our justification. And by and through His resurrection, God the Father was declaring to the world, This is my beloved Son. I am well pleased in Him. I have accepted the sacrifice that He has made. By the way, why did Jesus go to the cross? John 3.16 tells us it's because of the love of God that the Father sent him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And so he came as our substitute. That's what the Old Testament sacrifices were teaching. They were not um, check marks to get into heaven. They were not hurdles. They were not steps. The sacrifices were showing that there needs to be a substitute to die in our place for our sins. When they would offer Leviticus 1, when they would offer the lamb or the ram or whatever four-footed animal as a sacrifice, the one offering the sacrifice was to put his hand on the head of that animal. That signified a transfer of guilt from the person to that animal. Then the high priest would take the animal, come over to the altar, and kill it. And spill its blood and sprinkle its blood everywhere. So that shows what our sins deserve. Death, the shedding of blood. But the offerer did not receive the shedding of blood. 
The substitute did. And so Jesus comes on the scene just before his earthly ministry begins. John the Baptist, maybe he was Presbyterian, but he's called John the Baptist. In John 1.29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so God has provided a lamb and offers the lamb in our place. And so 1 John 2, 2 says that Jesus, that he is the propitiation for our sins, not only ours, but for the whole world. And that means that Jesus, as the propitiation, satisfied divine justice, God's wrath because of our sins. And so in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, speaking of the Father and the Son, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, it says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become what? The righteousness of God in or through Him. So Jesus, through His death, wipes away our guilt. He clears our record and He puts His record in, our, in the place of our record, his righteousness. So we get his righteousness credited to our account. So that's why now, even today, we can be called saints. We know we're not perfect. We know we sin against God. But positionally, we who are Christians are holy and righteous in the saints of the living God. We're the holy ones. And so in the Gospels, there's that ugly scene where Christ is betrayed, Christ is set before Pontius Pilate, he suffers, he's flogged, and then Pilate's in this dilemma, what do I do? do, I do what do I do with Jesus? And uh, they say, give us Barabbas. What about Jesus? Crucify him. And so out comes Barabbas, and in goes Jesus to die in his place. And so we are Barabbas. We are the insurrectionists. We are the murderers. And Jesus goes in, and he dies for us. I heard one preacher who was a seminary professor quote one of his students. This is, this is amazing. The student said, if something dirty is to become clean, something that is clean must become dirty. If you're going to clean the mud off of the floor, you have to use a clean rag. And Christ is the one who is clean. We are the ones who are muddy and dirty. And that's what Jesus came to do. And so, the resurrection can work in your favor. Even though Christ is going to be our judge, he can be your savior. The resurrection means that Jesus is who he said he is. He's the good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep. He is the Son of Man. He is the bread and life so that if you eat of His bread, you will have eternal life. He is the resurrection and the life. And it means that His sacrifice was accepted by God the Father, that our debt, who believe in Him, our debt is paid in full. And it means that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is true. It means that 1 John 1, 9 is true. It says there, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It means that 1 Corinthians 6, 11 is true. That even though we are sinners of the worst kind, we can be washed and justified and sanctified through Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. 
And it means what Jesus said in John 11, verse 25 is true. Because he lives, we will live too. Even after we die. And so if this sounds too good to be true, I think you can be encouraged. Because that probably means you understand what I'm saying about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is one of those things where it, it does sound too good to be true, but it is true. And so we praise God for that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ can work in your favor. The very one who will be your judge can at the same time be your Savior. And so then what must we do? That's the last question this morning. What must we do? Well, look at verse 30. It says, there truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to what? Repent. To repent. And then look at verse 34. There were some that joined Paul there. It says, however, some men joined him and what? Believed. So you have repentance and faith. Faith and repentance. Turn from your ways. Stop living life your way. Turn to the living God. Call upon the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and be saved. Have faith in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe the gospel. Put all of your eggs in the basket of the Lord Jesus Christ so that you might be saved. That's it. That's it. The Bible says, for grace are we saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8, it's by the gift and grace of God. And if we do not do that, if we do not follow the Lord Jesus Christ, if we do not turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? You will be resurrected. At the last day, there will be a resurrection of all men who have ever lived. John 5 and verse 29, our Savior teaches that. He says, for those who do trust in Him, they will receive the resurrection unto life for those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will see, receive the resurrection unto condemnation. And so it's serious. We need to think about the future. We don't think about the future much these days. Perhaps we do, but it seems like many of us don't in our society. And so if you haven't believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not put your faith in Him, I call upon you to do it. Now, today, is the day of salvation. That's what the Word of God says. Do it now, before it's too late. And if you're a Christian this morning, I praise God that you are. And perhaps you're, you're thinking, well, why, if I'm already justified, if I'm already forgiven, why will I be judged at the last day? Well... As part of our church here, we have this thing called a catechism. It's a doctrinal statement, and we base it on the Bible. And in our shorter catechism, the answer to one of the questions, number 38, it says that at the resurrection, believers shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted at the day of judgment and be made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to eternity. And that's based on Matthew 25, where Jesus says the sheep will be separated from the goats. But also, we not only will be openly acknowledged and declared as such, forgiven, 
but we'll be judged according to our works so that James 2 will be shown to be true, that faith without works will be, uh, faith without works is dead. And so the judgment will show that we lived a life, imperfectly so, but we did have good works, and it shows, therefore, that our faith was true saving faith. And so even our judgment that we receive as Christians is covered in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 3, where he talks about rewards given to Christians. And then we'll take our seat with Jesus Christ and judge the world with Him, 1 Corinthians 6, 2. So that's one reason Christians will be judged. Second, we need to understand what judgment does. It should be a source of consolation for the Christian. In Psalm 73, the psalmist Asaph, he had a dilemma. He, he was serving God in the temple day and night. Part of that was washing his hands, and he's, he asked the question, have I, have I washed my hands in vain? Do I serve God in vain? Am I wasting this life, you see? Is there really something else to come after this life? Because if there's not, like Paul says in the New Testament, eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. Paul, um, Asaph looked out and saw the prosperity of the wicked, and he struggled with that. Until, we are told, until he went into the house of God, the place of worship where he heard the word of God, where he was reminded of this doctrine, this truth of the judgment. And in Psalm 73 and verse 18, it says, Surely you set them, the wicked, in the slippery places. You cast them down into destruction. And so, for those who have committed heinous and awful crimes in this life and get away with it. Maybe lawmakers, maybe judges, maybe cops, whomever it is, there is a day of reckoning coming, as C.S. Lewis put it in his novel, when all things are made right. And we don't rejoice in the death of the wicked. God doesn't, but he is just. Sin must be punished. And so either the Lord Jesus Christ will take your punishment for you at the cross or you will take the punishment for your own sins for eternity in hell in the lake of fire. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a foretaste of divine glory and hope to come. And what that means for the Christian, Romans 8 says, is therefore now there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You have been declared not guilty, Christian. And so that is a blessing and a joy. And so as we see this text, it is a call even for the Christian, as it is for all men, to self-examination. But for the Christian, a day of assurance as well. For God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in judgment through Jesus Christ. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we, we thank you for revealing truth to us, truth which sometimes 
is not so easy for us to swallow. But you give it to us to awaken our minds, our hearts, our souls to the reality of who you are and what we need. And we need Jesus. For as he says, without him, we can do nothing. Without him, we cannot stand at the day of judgment. But because of him, we may and will. And for that, we are eternally grateful. And we thank you in his name. Amen.